Test, test, test. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Thank you for being here this morning. And I pray the Lord will bless you. I pray that when you walk out of here, your joy will be greater than it was when you walked in. And I pray that your faith will be stronger than it was when you walked in. I am honored to be able to impart the word of God to you. I think it as a great joy and an awesome responsibility. And your being here is an honor and an opportunity. So, Lord bless you this morning, okay? All right, you, you cool with that? All right, good. Um, <clears throat> before we get started this morning, I do have one announcement and... Um, you know, I am not the greatest administrator as it comes to being a pastor. Um, my mind is in a lot of different directions. And um, I forget things. Things fall through the cracks. And uh, sometimes I forget to tell people what's going on. Well, our uh, situations is on hold for right now. Uh, when I went to Prescott, I felt impressed by God to just put everything on hold, anything new that we were going to do, just to put it on hold, uh, and to see and wait and let the Lord move upon it. One of the things that I absolutely hate doing is, is begging for people to come back and serve. And I feel like it's always a big, huge commercial, you know, we've got to build it up, rah, rah. And it just grieves my heart. Um, and I know that it's common amongst all churches, that, and, and I don't take comfort in that, <laughs> all right? Just because everybody else is suffering the same thing doesn't mean I want to have to go through the same thing. But what grieves me isn't so much having to remind people or ask people to come do things. It's the fact that um, when people are totally and absolutely in love with God, when they're overflowing with the Spirit of God, you don't have to ask anybody to do anything. They just come. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, huge, huge church. They have waiting lists of people who want to serve in different areas. Of course, there are thousands and thousands of people. True, but still, you, you get the idea. The, 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 the joy of the Lord is there. It's their strength, and they come, and they want to do whatever is available to do. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, the 26th of September is the date, it, that's a Saturday, right? That is the date of uh, the return, and I don't mean the date of the return of Christ, okay? <laughs> it's the return, and I'll just let you talk to Jesus about it, all right? No. It is the event called the return where it's a day of fasting and prayer. And after that, we will decide where to go. We'll put it out there. People who want to come and be a part of it will come and be a part of it. And if no one shows up, then we just won't do it. And it'll be as simple as that. Um, we are in the midst praying for revival in this church. Revival in myself, revival in you, revival as a body of Christ. And we, we've heard inklings that there is revival going on in different parts of the country even now, and I love that thought. Um, I believe, but I could be wrong, so don't start a denomination over this, okay, is that uh, there will be one more great revival before the Lord comes. My personal conviction is that after that big revival, then we're going to go home. I don't know when, I don't know how it's going to happen, but that's that's my hope, <laughs> okay? And that's what I'm looking forward to. So revival is going to come, but it will not come. It absolutely will not come until we start praying for it to come. And that's sort of what this lesson is about. It's what last week's lesson led into. And this week, we're going to be talking about it again from a different angle. So why don't we do that, okay? Why don't we stand together please and open your bibles to the 32nd chapter of the book of exodus exodus chapter 32 and we're going to read verses 30 through 35 
Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Let's pray. This is God's word. Father, I just want to surrender right now every word out of my mouth this morning. I ask you to give me articulation. I ask you to help me stress your goodness. We believe in you. We believe that you are God and that there is none other. We believe that salvation comes through your son, Jesus Christ. We believe that he made atonement for us, that he stands as the mediator between us and you. We know that our sin is is offensive, and we know, Father, that is just our nature. But you, in compassion on us, gave us a way to clean ourselves up through Jesus Christ and our faith in him and in him alone. So we come to you in faith and Holy Spirit, please speak to us. Manifest yourself to us. Draw us closer to yourself. Expose the hidden things within our hearts that may be hindering us from experiencing your manifest power in our lives. And do the work in us because we stand before you, the God who is able to do far more and above than we could ever dream or think. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? All right. You may be seated, please. And can someone get the lights? All right. Let me start off by offending you, okay? (laughs) I mean, I don't do that always. All right. Are you an idol worshiper? Is it possible to be a Christian and still be an idol worshiper at the same time? Yeah, okay. Chuck Smith said, we proclaim quite self-righteously that we don't worship idols, when in reality we do worship the very same principles that ancient people once personified with little wood or stone gods. So then, if it isn't a Buddha or a Kali or a Ganesha, what is it? Well, according to Timothy Keller, and I think this is a great working definition for us, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That could be your idol. It's something you can't live without. You've just got to have it whether it's a material item like a car or a house or a relationship or a job or a career, you've got to have it. 
And that drives you even to the point of breaking rules that you once honored. And sometimes it harms others and even yourself in your pursuit of it. It's that thing that you say to yourself, if I have that, then I will feel like my life has meaning. I'll know that I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. And you can locate that by looking at your fears. What do you fear losing the most? And if you lost it, would life not be worth living anymore? You see, whatever controls you is your Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people they want to please. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. Now, what is it that you're seeking when you seek an idol? Well, this is what the cultures back in the day sought after. Security, protection, prosperity, power, guidance, and success. They didn't have personal relationship with their idols. They just wanted to appease the idol so that these things would be in their stocking at Christmas time, okay? Do they deliver? No. The idols do not deliver, but they are attractive. In God, all of these things are found. And to seek them elsewhere is idol worship. And as we're going to see today, God will have none of that. All right? He created you for himself, and you will find your fulfillment only in him. That's the way it is. Okay. It starts with his moral law, and we're going to see that in verses 15 and 16. Now, I'll give you some background, again, which you probably already know. Moses has been up in Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's on the mountain getting the rules of the game from God. We call it the law. The centerpiece are those 10 simple rules to live by. You remember those rules, right? Don't have any other God before me. Honor your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder, etc., etc. Simple. <laughs> or so it seems. He's also getting the details of the plans for the portable worship center that they're going to be carting around for 40 years, even though they don't realize that yet. Uh, he's finished this meeting with God, and God has told him to get down to his people because they've already polluted themselves with idolatry. And they've only been out of Egypt for two months. Parents, how long does it take your kids to get into trouble when they're by themselves? Five seconds. <laughs> James is going, what? And God said to Moses, just let me destroy him and I'll just start all over with you, right? And, and Moses stepped up, right? Seemingly to calm God down by interceding for the people. And he reminded God of his promises, right? And also um, the purpose for him bringing this particular group of people down the mountain in the first place. And we realized last week, and it was really cool that God relented. And we realized he didn't change his mind. He changed his course of action. He did exactly what he intended to do all along. But the big lesson there was is that people need intercessors. We need intercessors. And I still don't think, at least as the Christian culture in the United States, realized just how significant, important, and powerful intercessory prayer is. Okay, so let's pick up the story now in verse 15. As Moses comes down the mountain, <clears throat> Moses turned and went down from the mountain, verse 15, with the two tables of the testimony in his hand. Tables or tablets that were written on both sides. The tables were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. All right. I want you to point out here that it's very significant that these tablets were written with God's direct hand. 
Can you imagine what kind of price they would have put on them in the antique roadshow? Okay, I'm not sure how they would authenticate it, but still, wow, how valuable those things would be if they were in our possession today. God is the moral law giver, and those 10 rules, they, they sort of codify in, in a very simple language what is true for all people in all places at all times. These aren't just expectations. These are the things that we, we put forward to have a society that prospers, that grows, and is strong. But as we found out and as we know, none of us can really keep them. Therefore, we need, first of all, to have a new heart placed within us. We need a character that's transformed. We've got to have something inside of us that wants to do those 10 simple rules. And when you've come to Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you got, a new heart. He wrote his law upon your heart and he simplified it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Simple, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, in our culture, in our society, most people reject this kind of thinking. Um, They are idolaters of the intellect. Those who find security and control and power and influence and emotional satisfaction in thinking on their own. I don't need anyone or anything to tell me how to live my life. They're living off the goodness of God and they they attribute their success in their abilities to figure things out. I remember when I was teaching at an elementary school and I accidentally left a bulletin in the coffee office of our church which explained to what we believed. And... um, one of the teachers, who actually was a friend, says, what is wrong with you? Can't you think for yourself? Do you have to have a book that tells you how you should think? Of course, I didn't want to get into a fight, but I was tempted to say, well, who does your thinking for you? Because I'm certain that you, you're not the original person who only thinks for themselves. I love Ravi Zacharias, and he has a way of of saying things back to people who challenge him that is just classic. Uh, There's a University of Pennsylvania question and answer session, and a student was asking Ravi why he was afraid of subjective moral reasoning. Elizabeth, do you know what subjective moral reasoning is? In other words, you get to make up the rules. Okay, you make up the rules, you go by what is right to you. Okay, and you know, since you have to live with James, then you're going to have to figure this thing out together, but you guys get to make up your own rules. That's subjective moral reasoning. He said, why do we need an outside source to guide us to what is moral and what is not? Do you think we'll all just start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do? He goes, that's not going to happen. What are you so afraid of? Robbie got up, cleared his throat, straightened his jacket, and asked the young man right to his face, do you uh, lock your doors at night? (laughs) And the kid said, all right, everybody's laughing. But he says, but China is secular. He says, they're, they're a moral society, and they don't abide by the book. And Robbie says, oh, man. China and Russia in the 20th century have killed over 60 million people apiece. Makes the Holocaust seem like, seem tame by comparison. That's what happens when we reject God's moral standard. If not God, what's the supreme source outside of yourself? Who's going to define what is harm, what is good? and what is bad. Who's going to determine the rules, James, of a game that you and Elizabeth are going to make up for yourselves? And if you have the right to change the rules, are you going to change them for your benefit to hurt her? No, you wouldn't do that, would you? Because you're fair and just and kind. 
What's the collective good, guys? Who sets the standard? Well, the collective sets the standard. They determine. Morals of society determine what's right. And you know what? That is always shifting when you don't have guidelines. It always shifts to the whims of society. Like today. Like today. What's the worst thing you can be called in our society? Ah, see, I do, you didn't even have to think about it. You know, right? Exactly. And those who have hijacked the definition of words and terms today have decided that if you are of Caucasian descent, then you are inherently racist. And how do they know that? By the color of your skin. That's how I know. You can't help it. You're born that way. Now, though people of color may make otherwise racist remarks and do harm because of the color of your skin, they are not racist because they come from an oppressed group. And that's a fact, Jack. All right? That's the way it is today. Now, I know you're thinking somebody somewhere has lost their collective mind. All right? But it doesn't matter. This is insane, and it defies logic and morality. But, but, it's gaining traction. It is getting traction nationwide. So here's the question I have. What are we setting up? Most of us will probably be dead and gone before this becomes totally outlaid in our society. What are we setting up? What's coming if this becomes core curriculum in elementary schools, which it's headed to? There's comfort, guys, in having a moral law giver who gives us a moral standard for all people in all places at all times. There's peace in being held accountable to him. He sets the limits and boundaries that provide security, freedom, and hope. You guys remember a guy named Larry Nasser? Who's heard that name? Anybody? All right. USA gymnastic national team doctor, right? Former, former um, osteopathic physician, professor at Michigan State University. 2018 was charged with 22 counts of first-degree criminal sexual contact, contact with minors. He's serving 175 years in Michigan State Penitentiary. One of his accusers, one of the very first to actually confront him was Rachel Denhollander, who is now a, a lawyer and a mother of three. This is what she said when she gave her emotional impact statement at his sentencing. She said, I pray you experiencing the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than the forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Now, she got some flack for the last part of that sentence, okay? Later on, sharing at a Veritas forum at Harvard University, She's making the case for Christianity and a moral lawgiver. She says this, and, and here, please listen to this because this really touched my heart. Because there is at least some sort of standard, goodness does exist. If there is evil, then there must be its opposite, good. And if goodness exists, then there is hope. And in grieving, there is healing. And if there is a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver because it's always discussed in the context about people. And if there is a moral law giver, then he must be loving and caring about you because the moral law flows from his very nature. There's hope in the moral law. And that's something idolatry does not provide for. Lifeless idols just leave you in the cesspool that you're in and does nothing to provide you with hope. 
All right. So we got that established, right? So with a moral law in his hands, in verse 17 through 19, we see Moses do an angry thing. Moses does an angry thing. (laughs) Verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. And so it was. As soon as he came near the camp, they saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Joshua says, hey, sounds like war's going on. Moses, there ain't no war, man. That's a party. There's a party going on right now. And then they see the calf, and they see the dancing, and in verse 25, it tells us the costumes they were not wearing. Okay? And Moses burned with anger. Do you know what we call that? Rage. Rage. Are there any of you who go through the internet YouTube videos and see the road rage videos. Anybody? All right. All right. Don't worry about it. There's such thing, okay? It's incredible to see rage. And that's what's going on. So he takes the tablets, he throws them down, and smashes them. Righteous indignation? Well, perhaps that's what led to his anger. Okay. But those are the tablets of God, man. I mean, he just put his writing on that. Do you know how special and precious those things are? And you just throw them down like that in anger, in a rage? No, this is, this is out of control anger. Jesus had righteous indignation, right? When he went into the temple and he overturned the tables, you, you shall not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Remember when he did that? You guys remember that story? Yeah, that was righteous indignation. Moses is not turning over the idol yet. He's breaking the Ten Commandments. Literally, okay? (laughs) Point here is Moses has an issue with anger through much of his life. Maybe you can identify with that. Many people can. Remember Exodus chapter 2? What did he do to that Egyptian that he got angry with? Killed him. Here he breaks the tablets written by God's finger because he's angry. Numbers chapter 11, he gets angry with God because the people won't stop complaining about the food God's providing for them. Remember, manna in the morning, manna in the afternoon, manna in the evening, manicotti, banana bread. It's just manna, 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 all right? And they've had enough. And who are they complaining to? Moses. And he's had it up to here. And he's mad at God for that. And he asked God, look, just... Just take me out and kill me right now. I'm done. In his anger. You ever felt that way? I'm sure some of you have. All right. Uh, later on in Numbers chapter 20, there's the rock that God tells him specifically, speak to this rock. It's the same one in Horeb that you, you, you struck earlier and water came out of it. Now just speak to the rock. Water will flow out of it. The people are complaining because they're thirsty. They'll be refreshed. But he got so angry with those people, and he got out there, and he says, must I strike this rock? And he smacks it. And in God's grace, the water does come out to refresh the people, but he got a notice in his inbox. I need to see you in my office. That last display of anger cost him dearly. It kept him out of the thing that he had been waiting for over 80 years to get into the promised land. Wow. And he lost it with one temper tantrum. But actually, just wasn't one, right? There's been an issue with this all along. The Hebrew word for anger comes from the words for face and for nostrils. And I think we've got a picture up here that shows them. And it kind of distorts your appearance when you're angry, okay? You're... You, One writer said, your face becomes an outward manifestation of a volcano. (laughs) All right? 
And of course, you know what it does to your body. Science has told us that unhealthy anger just eats you up. Explosive rage can do real damage. Now, here's the deal, Lucille. You don't have to act out on your anger. You can control that. You don't have to go all lizard brain on people. You know what lizard brain is? It's because when you start getting angry and you're out of control, you're thinking with a little gland back in here. It's called the lizard brain. I can't pronounce the scientific name for it. Okay. That's what they tell us anyway. Anger can be controlled. Um, Romaine was Chuck Smith's assistant pastor. He'd spent 20-some-odd years in the Marine Corps as a drill sergeant. And um, then he became an assistant pastor, so you can imagine how compassionate he might be if you had an issue, right? (laughs) A guy who was a truck driver came to his um, office one day. He was a brand-new Christian, and he says, you know, I've got a real problem with my temper. I'm wondering if you can help me with it. I drive a truck all around Orange County um, every day, and I get behind people that are just driving, is just driving me crazy. And I want to run them off the road. I'm hammering on the the horn and I'm making creative hand gestures to them and stuff. He says, you know what, I don't think this is right. So I'm wondering, can 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 you help me with this? Can God help me with this? And Romain goes, Yeah, this is what I want you to do. After we get done here, which is just in a minute, I want you to go to Safeway. I want you to buy the biggest box of depends you can find. All right. Depends are like diapers for adults, all right? And then when you experience this again, pull your truck over to the side of the road. This is, he actually said this. Get out of the truck, go to the grass on the side, roll back and forth, scream, shout, kick your hands, stomp your feet, and then when you're done, get up and be a man. All right. He didn't think that was too helpful. The Bible says in Romans 6.14 that sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. But as God said to Cain, who is angry enough to kill his brother Abel, sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. He didn't say that Tinkerbell will come and wave a magic wand over you, then all your emotions will dissipate and you will be at peace. He didn't say that. You must master it. That requires spiritual discipline. How many of you think the word discipline is a four-letter word? All right. Discipline. Self-control. Second Peter 1.5 says, for this very reason, giving all diligent, add to your faith, and then has a whole list of, of attributes to, for you to add to your faith, and one of them is self-control. Notice, though, it's your responsibility to see that it's happened. It's God's expectation. It's his command that you do this, but it's up to you to make it happen. When, excuse me, you'll be given all you need to obey that command as soon as you choose and make the first move to obey. Call it a contact point of faith. Then all of a sudden, you can do it. Will it be hard? Probably. Will you be tempted to quit? Oh, yeah. But once you succeed, you will see that you can do it. And will you blow it sometimes? Probably more than you wish. But still, you will gain the victory. James 1.19. And if you can keep up with me, turn there. James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Notice it did not say, so then my beloved brethren, when you get angry, pray to God and he will give you a mantra 
it says, you choose. You choose. Make this choice. And then Colossians 3.8. Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, and malicious behavior. Now is the time for you to choose to get rid of anger, rage, and malicious behavior. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Well, do what? I thought anger was a sin. No. No, anger is an emotion. What you do with that emotion makes it either sinful or not sinful, all right? Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, okay? And verse 27 says, nor give place to the devil. In other words, don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I am seeing a whole lot more anger and rage than ever before in our nation. Okay? I was at Fry's the other day, and a fist fight broke out in the parking lot right in front of me and my daughter. Um, I didn't know what to do, so I watched. <laughs> All right? And um, I felt embarrassed afterwards. I should have jumped in there and done the Chuck Norris thing, but I just would have got chucked. Anyway, I'd never seen anything. Well, I have seen some violence when I grew up with my family life. But still, fries? Really? Um, America has become a society of rage. That's a headline that I read. And the statistics seem to back it up. Notice that in Ephesians, rage is an attribute of Satan. And to rage gives place to him. Now, Rabbi Yehuda, I, I read several uh, Jewish forums online to see if there was a link between anger and idol worship, and I found this quote, a person who is angry is sacrificing his senses to the blood of his passions. It's a form of idol worship. You're sacrificing your senses to the blood of your passions. So, if your problem emotion is anger, then your idol is pride and power. Your greatest fear is probably humiliation. And let me tell you, the people around you will feel used and abused, and eventually you're going to drive them away. You will just drive them away because no one will want to put up with you. Now, let's go back to Exodus 32. And look at verse 20. Uh, we've seen Moses come down the mountain. We see Moses did an angry thing. And now Moses gives an object lesson. You guys like object lessons? I love object lessons. Verse 20. He took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Sounds pretty gross, doesn't it? It, sounds, it does not sound healthy, not at all. Okay. I don't think they're going to make a Powerade flavor out of this. Commentators call this the burn, grind, scatter, eat sequence. The burn, grind, scatter, and eat. But it was a common practice, actually. Uh, in some ancient Kurdish texts, um, they found examples of this very sort of thing being done by other kings and so forth to people. So there's precedence for it, is what I'm saying. Moses is not just shooting from the hip and coming creative with his judgment, okay? Um, I believe that Moses, by this act, was just trying to show the, the utter impotency of their newly adopted God. In other words, my young friend Elizabeth, those gods are powerless. You got this thing up so that it would guide you and direct you. You're giving it all the credit for parting the Red Sea and bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians. And I'm going to show you that what you got is nothing. Um, an ancient commentator, and I love reading what the ancient commentators, the ones that were like 200 BC or AD, I guess, 
BCEEB, I don't know, what, what is it? Anyway, I think it was 580 St. Ambrose said, Moses ground the head of the golden calf into powder, cast it into water, and gave it to the people to drink. For their hearts were fat with gross faithlessness. And he did this so that their hearts might be softened and they might embrace the keenness of faith. We tend to put idols in our life that are power-related and are fueled by pride. And we get humiliated when they are challenged and torn down. How many of you remember the reaction of a lot of news commentators and pundits at the results of the 2016 election? Yeah. Did you ever think that you'd see them break down and cry on national TV? Wow. You know, that was just undone. Their idol is political ideology. And their life was in the balance when their social causes were not making progress or ascending influence. They felt undone, lost, angry, very angry. And that anger seems to have lasted for four years. Let me warn you about something, guys. Are you already seeing red? And I don't mean that as a pun, okay. Are you consumed with fear if this election goes left? Will you be in despair? Will you be tempted to move out of the country? Will you be an emotional wreck? Then there's an idol lurking at your door. And you need to exercise your God-given privilege to vote for the candidate that best reflects your values. But after that, you leave this in the Lord's hands. And if it doesn't go your way, it is not the end of the world. Right? We have, remember, when Paul wrote the New Testament, <laughs> Nero was on the throne. And, and oh, we got some juicy candidates, okay? We don't have a Nero. Not yet. Psalm 118, 8 and 9 says, It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. It's true then, it's true now, okay? So take a big, deep breath, let it out slow. It's going to be okay. All right. So Moses came down the mountain. He did an angry thing. He gave an object lesson, and now he's going to ask a question. Look at verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought so great a sin upon them? Aaron said, don't let your anger, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, well, if you've got gold, let it break it off. So they gave it to me. I put it in the fire and out came a calf. What can I say? Now, truly, we don't really get the emotion of what Aaron, was he scared when Moses was doing this? Most commentators think that he was being just a little cavalier. Tyson's so like, you know, chill, bro. This ain't no big deal, okay? We, I mean, we, just, we did this in Egypt, remember? Okay. He quotes the people exactly, right? But when it comes to talking about his part in the whole thing, what does he do? He lies. He plays the blame game. And then he acts surprised. His fingerprints are all over this idol, right? Remember in verse 4, uh, he thought it out, he melted the gold, he molded it, he fashioned it carefully with an engraving tool, and he probably put, you know, um, A-B-M, Aaron, brother of Moses, and the small, far right-hand bottom corner. Now, here's the application of that. We do a lot the same thing. We do this a lot ourselves. We act surprised when some endeavor that we have been working on all our life turns out that it's been an idol all of our life. We put our time and our effort into something, you know, a career, a business, um, any kind of pursuit where you're finding your security, your identity, your prosperity. It's all in your work, and you spend years sacrificing to it, to it, to it crafting it, molding it, shaping it, putting your whole heart into it, 
And then all of a sudden, something happens where it's going to be taken away or destroyed and shown that it's powerless, and you discover that it's been an idol all along. The all-consuming fear is the uncertainty of what's going to happen if it all collapses. What will I do? And you start to worry, you fret, you get anxious, you get all worked up, you lose your sleep, you treat people poorly, and and it's almost like you act like you should have a free pass because if you knew what I was worried about. And the people around you start feeling condemned, unsure, unsure, uptight. It's an idol, dude. Your identity is all tied up in that transient passing thing. You need to change your identity. You need to change your focus. You need to change your master passion. Philippians 1.21, Paul said it all. Paul said it all. Isn't that right? Paul, Paul? Yeah, said it all. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm a tent maker by trade. My business fails. Don't matter to me. I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. But if it booms, well, it just gives me more opportunities to share Christ. And that's what is all in all to me. The amplified version of Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. He's my source of joy, my reason to live, and to die is gain because I'll be with him in eternity. It's win-win, win-win. John Corson says, this is the single mind we need, saints. If we're to think properly and live joyfully, Mr. Businessman, Mr. Athlete, Ms. Politician, anything else is going to be exclusive and unsatisfying. Anything else will leave you on the short end of the stick. The only way to rejoice through life, to be happy about life, to be full of joy in life, is to say, my identity lies solely in Jesus. Moses came down the mountain. He did an angry thing. He gave an object lesson. He asked a question. And now he calls out the people. Look at verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to the shame among their enemies. Remember, they are with a mixed multitude there. There are Egyptians as well as, shall we say, Israelis together. So he's embarrassing, they're embarrassing themselves. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. The people are unrestrained. If you have a King James version in your hand, it says the people were naked. Okay. And most commentators say that that means that they were engaged in licentious, sexually oriented worship. And by the way, no surprise, that's the M.O. of Apis worship. Apis the cow. Remember we talked about that last week? Apis the cow. Yeah, I was going to name my pet cow. I'm going to name my pet cat Apis. All right? I don't have a pet cat. I don't want a pet cat. I don't want to see any cats. Okay? What happens here is that this is showing how great the problem was. And and Moses is figuring out now that this was a little bit more serious than what he thought it was when he first pleaded with God to spare them. Dave Guzik says, there's no greater danger than for people to cast off all restraint and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Have you noticed what's happening in Atlanta and Bakersfield and Boston and Chicago and Portland and Seattle right now? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a link on a website on newsweek.com. Protest near me, like Toys R Us. Protest near me, list of cities that are rioting. Okay? The darkest days of Israel's national history were characterized by Judges 17.6. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In our culture, absence of restraint, heaven on earth, right? But common sense tells you that 
you ain't going to last long if that's the way everybody's going to live. Okay, just think about what driving is like in Mumbai. I have seen the traffic situations, and it is, well, let's say, the laws of the road are more or less than guidelines. All right, the biggest vehicle wins, basically, right? Now, let's go to the United States of America, rush day, I-17, I-10 interchange, no rules. Do what you want. Go as fast as you want, go as slow as you want. Go wherever you want to go. All right? Uh, it's going to give road rage a whole new definition, isn't it? Because Americans don't put up with that. That's right. What we're saying is, is that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is death. When man follows his own fleshly desires, it leads to ruin. So the people were unrestrained. They were engaged in licentious, sexually oriented worship, and this is the idolatry of pleasure. Hedonism means having fun is the most important thing in life, the chief good. Now, the, the greatest fear for people who have this as their idol is that you're afraid of stress. Don't want demands on your life, and you don't want responsibility because that leads to demands and stress, right? And your problem is, is that you're bored and you're lazy, and the people around you feel neglected, used, and abused because you end up taking advantage of them. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Okay? And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 26. Who's ever on the Lord's side? Come to me. He gives the people of Israel an opportunity to make a stand for the Lord. And notice that when they have to make a stand, that means they're going to have to stand against their own brothers, possibly family members, friends, okay? And unfortunately also, it was the Levites were the only ones who did. In verse 27, it says, He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. These who fell that day were probably the most flagrant in their idolatry and immorality, or they were just the leaders of all of this contact. conduct. excuse me. But notice this. Notice this, because that seems harsh, right? Moses offered amnesty. He said, who's on the Lord's side? Come over here. Anybody who would have agreed with that statement could have stepped on over and spared themselves. Anybody. Whether they had been guilty of the sin of what they were doing or not. And those who did not, they did not, and they risked the sword. Now, remember what God said he was going to do. Remember what he told Moses? This is what I'm going to do. Step aside. Don't hold me back. I'm wiping them all out, and we're going to start over with you. And they would have all deserved it, too. But it didn't happen that way. 3,000. 3,000 at this time. So what you see here in wrath is mercy. Habakkuk 3.2. Habakkuk. He offered amnesty. Okay, so we've seen Moses do an angry thing, give an object lesson, call the people out, and now we see him make atonement. Look at verse 29. Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray blot me out of your book which you have written. God, please forgive them. Please forgive Elizabeth and James. All right. 
please forgive them. But if you're not going to forgive them, then don't forgive me either. Wow. That's pretty powerful, right? What did the Lord say? He said, (laughs) where are you, Dennis? I don't know where I'm at. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, and nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them, the individuals, for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So God agreed to spare the nation as a whole, but he reserves the right to judge individual sinners. And at the same time, he promises to stay faithful, to keep his presence with them. My angel shall go before thee, right? So in wrath, he remembers mercy. Here's the big lesson, and I don't know where this is on the slides, Carly, so I'm just going to leave it in your hands. Again, it was Moses' intercession that rescued the people. This is the God of the universe, guys. He doesn't have to ask anybody their opinion about anything. He doesn't need to get permission from anybody to do anything. He, he does what he determines. Fortunately for us, he is a good God, and he is all the time God, and he is a just God, and he is a holy God, and at the same time, he is fully compassionate and merciful. That's good for us, or all of us would be toast. But, He doesn't rescue without the ministry of intercession. Do you remember what intercession is, Elizabeth? All right? You came home from school. Dad's car is parked in the driveway. And your backpack just scraped along the side of the car and left a huge mark. Now, you know your dad, okay? He's going to kill you. James comes up and he says Elizabeth I'll go tell dad what you did and and I'll try to calm him down wouldn't that be nice (laughs) she goes "Mm, I don't know (laughs) you get the idea that's what intercession is I'm going to speed read these verses I'm going to leave us with a quote and then we'll close our service Isaiah 59, Isaiah the prophet, he'd been telling the people, repent, 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 all right, the end's coming soon, dude, the end's coming soon, you've got to repent, but there's still time, and of course, no one would do it, but notice what he says about others, he says he saw, Isaiah 59, 16, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, why isn't anybody praying for these people? Isaiah 63, 5, I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished there was no one to uphold. Isaiah 64, 7, and there was no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you for you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. And then Ezekiel twenty two thirty, 30, Ezekiel the prophet saying basically the same thing. I sought for a man who among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. No one would take the time. Andrew Murray, as you know, one of my favorite devotional writers, um, has a lot to say about revival since he was part of a great awakening in his own church and country. He has a book he wrote called God Seeks Intercessors, and this is what he writes. I have the last part of the quote up on the screen, but bear with me here. There is a world with its perishing millions, with intercession as its only hope. How much of love and work is comparatively vain because there is so little intercession. A thousand millions living as if they never had been, had been a son of God, as if there never had been a son of God 
to die for them. 30 millions every year passing into the outer darkness without hope. 50 millions bearing the Christian name and the great majority living in utter ignorance or indifference. Millions of feeble, sickly Christians. Thousands of wearied workers who can be blessed by intercession could help themselves to become mighty in intercession. Churches and missions sacrificing life and labor often with little result for lack of intercession. Souls, each one worth more than worlds, worth nothing less than the price paid for them in Christ's blood and within reach of the power that can be won by intercession. We surely have no conception of the magnitude of the work to be done by God's intercessors or we should cry to God above everything to give from heaven the spirit of intercession.